The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. A number of years ago, Rohit Bhargava wrote a simple article about non-obvious trends to watch, because we've all seen the other version of trends to watch, these lists of relatively to-be-expected items, things we've been talking about, reading about, thinking about, sometimes for years or even decades. But Rohit aspired to focus upon the non-obvious trends, looking at patterns and trends that are often missed and unnoticed by others. Well, that blog post, that article led to another article, which eventually led to a series of books each year listing different non-obvious trends to watch. It's incredibly thought-provoking, really meaning-rich stuff. And so I'm excited to give you a glimpse of his work on our episode today. Here we go. Rohit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really excited to have you. You've done some fascinating work, and we're going to dive into non-obvious megatrends in a little bit. But before we do so, let's give the audience a chance to get to know you a bit. Could you please just tell us a little bit of your story and how you ended up focusing upon this this work around megatrends? Absolutely. My story is, I think that I try and help people be more interesting. And what I mean by that is I focus on trying to share what I call non-obvious ideas. And to me, what that means is uh, topics and and ways of thinking that most people don't share. And, And what I've spent my career trying to teach people how to do is to spot those extraordinary things and to find connections where other people don't and to curate these ideas and these stories to have better ideas for themselves, to be more open-minded and, and yeah, to be just more interesting people in general. So to me, that's what non-obvious as a brand and, and a way of thinking is all about. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, I mean, how does one get into that line of work though? I mean, it's not a typical, you know, 12 years old on the playground or or out in the field and say, you know, I want to spot non-obvious trends. (laughs) No, no, no. When you're 12 years old, you're going to be a professional soccer player. I think (laughs) that's, that's, uh, that's a better dream. (laughs) But uh, I think the, the short answer to that is you fall into this accidentally. And the, the longer answer is that you get into it because, in my case, you have the benefit of going through a career that has given you an opportunity to touch many industries in the same day all the time. And what I mean by that is I, I grew up in the advertising industry and in the agency world. And to me, what that meant was in the same day, I might be helping communication strategy for Intel with microchips and also working on a social cause related campaign for HIV awareness and marketing toothbrushes. And that was just in one day. And because I grew up in that sort of fast paced environment with many industries all at once, I became adept at paying attention to what mattered most about something. I mean, I didn't have the time to become a 20-year industry veteran of selling breakfast cereal. I had to figure it out quickly. 
And anybody in that agency type of environment has to have that type of skill set to be successful. And, and what it taught me was how to pay attention to what really matters and to filter through the noise. So as we get into this, uh, it's fascinating that you you came from the advertising space. I actually have done a lot of work around forecasting for different organizations and have developed my own little system. I don't know if you even call it a system because it's really just kind of looking for uh, patterns and synergies across organizations and contexts and the like. Um, but coming from an advertising standpoint is really intriguing. I'm imagining that you're working with clients across multiple industries. So that gives you an opportunity to begin to notice some of these patterns, I suppose. Yeah, I think that that you do end up noticing some of the patterns. But I think that at its heart, good advertising or good marketing is about understanding how persuasion works and being able to tell a story. And both of those things, I think, turn out to be really useful skills for understanding the way that the world works because you're paying attention to what influences someone to behave in a certain way, to make the choices that they make, to believe something or someone instead of something or someone else. These are all the sorts of things that, that relate, I think, peripherally to the world of marketing and advertising. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about that shift from advertising directly into this work and how, how did that happen for you professionally? For me, it started with me writing a blog post that went viral back in 2011. And uh, so I had been blogging at that point uh, for about six or seven years already. So I built up a pretty decent sized audience at that point. Uh, having started a blog in 2004, that was way early. So there were not that many of us. So if anybody was reading any blogs, they were probably reading mine and, and a few others because we were just early. And when I published this blog post in 2011, I called it Non-Obvious Trends. So Non-Obvious at that point wasn't really a brand. It was just a way of describing what these trends were. And I tried to set them apart from all of these other trends that I was reading near the end of the year because everything that I was reading seemed to me to be blatantly obvious. And so I tried to spotlight things that I, didn't, that I thought were not that obvious. And that's kind of where it started. In that blog post, uh, it, it had a PowerPoint presentation attached to it, sort of a 15-slide presentation. That went viral, had hundreds of thousands of people watching it and sharing it. So then the next year after, I thought, well, it did really well. I should probably do it again. So I did a new version of it in 2012, and that was the second time I did it. And that went even more viral. And then the third year, I said, well, let me turn it into an ebook." and put it on Amazon. So I did the same blog post and I also did an ebook and that became a bestseller on Amazon. So I did that again in 2014. And uh, finally in 2015, I, I did it as a book, a full length book. And the difference between the trend reports for the first four years in the book is that the book talked about the process behind this. So how do you, what I called my haystack method. And then it was like, how do you do this? And that hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And at that point, I ended up leaving the agency and starting my own thing. Yeah, that's great. So those are those are two things that I'd love to dive into here is one, talk a little bit about the method, and then we will save the uh, some of the megatrends themselves for the last part, if that's okay. So, um, but I think to make the method relevant, maybe we have to talk about um, an example or two. So I'm wondering if you can just give us a little glimpse of, or, or take us through maybe one of the one of the more provocative, non-obvious trends that you identified early on and that you got right. 
Sure. I think that one of the, one of the things, well, first of all, I mentioned the method, I called it the haystack method. Uh, the reason for that is because I believe that if we spend enough time gathering the hay, which is all of these ideas and stories and, and research, we can take our own needle and put it in the middle of that and, uh, and decide what that means. So instead of looking at the old cliche of looking for a needle in a haystack, to me, it was more about assembling the hay assembling the haystack. So that's why I called it the haystack method. Uh, And to me, what that meant was that I would gather all of these stories and I would find connections where other people weren't paying attention to them because they were crossing industries and they would cross a span of time also. I mean, most of us are looking for these connections. If we look for these connections at all, we look for them in the short term. What did I read yesterday? How does that connect to today? Not what did I read eight months ago? And how does that connect to today? And so for me, part of it became what's the discipline behind collecting these stories and saving them in a way that they become useful over time. And one of the, the trends, I remember one of the early trends that, that I actually wrote about in the book that, that really, I think, captured this was a trend I called engineered addiction. And it captured it because I was finding these examples of, for example, apps like games that were becoming highly addictive. And this was maybe five years ago that I was writing about this, but like Candy Crush, for example, like highly addictive games. Mm-hmm. And I was seeing that as one example. But then all of these other examples of like gamified learning or like addictive food or addictive gambling and the idea that all of these addictions were intentionally created to some degree by someone. Uh, And that's where the engineered part of this came in. And so putting these pieces together, I wrote about what I called engineered addiction. And there was a lesson behind this, which is if we can spot this, if we can spot these products or services or experiences that have been engineered to be addictive, maybe we can better resist them. Yeah, that's great. So let's take that one as an example here and, and kind of dive in. So you say that this haystack method, uh, talk a little bit more about how, how did you collect stories? You, you just, you sort of mentioned that a little bit, but is it, is it kind of um, a, a pretty sort of qualitative, just seeking out these stories and then you sort of look across them and begin to notice patterns? Is there more to it? Yeah, uh, this one started with with actually a story that I read in Rolling Stone uh, magazine about a guy. It was like a, a Vietnamese guy who invented a game called Flappy Bird uh, that had really become addictive. And I don't know if you remember it, but it was just like you press this button and the bird kind of flies. And it was just like people were wasting hours and hours of time. I mean, there were some people who were like ignoring relationships and losing their jobs because of this. Hmm. And what I thought was significant about it was the guy who invented the game became so uh, regretful about the effect that his game had had that he took the game offline. And even though he had been making like millions of dollars from it, he took it offline and he just said, okay, I'm done. And he disappeared. And that's what the story was about. And that had me intrigued because that's just, it's a, it's a curious, interesting story. So I saved that story. I didn't know what the significance was, but again, you know, this was me kind of saving it and moving on. Later, I read a couple of other things. I read a book called uh, Salt Sugar Fact that talked fat that talked about how there's like a bliss point for food that makes food addictive. And then I read another book that was all about research into uh, from an MIT anthropologist research into gambling and how uh, machines 
make us addictive in some ways and also how we become addicted to social media. And so all of these things were examples of this from multiple points of view. There were games, there was food, there was gambling. Uh, and, and those were the, the, the levers that then eventually started to connect into a broader, bigger idea. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. Um, and uh, I think I can relate a lot. This is sort of, I feel like a, a story collector and uh, <laughs> yeah. and then you sort of fall asleep and they come together in the morning. <laughs> um, that's great. In terms of a time frame, talk about just for those that are listening. And I do teach a doctoral course on futures and forecasting and, um, and talk about this quite a bit. And I've, I learned that uh, early on, I, I would have all sorts of different methods to try to help people improve their capacity to identify trends and patterns and the less obvious ones. Um, but then I realized you have to just go do it. <laughs> like it's one of those pieces that just requires actual deliberate practice of collecting stories and creating space and time to think about it. So for you, you know, what does that look like? Look for this engineered addiction. Is this over a period of weeks or months or years or what's the time frame look like? Is it a pretty just organic process for you? Is it something you do in a structured way, like you're a student and you're kind of designing your own course? It was very specific in terms of the time frame for me, only because I had this annual deliverable of a new version of the book. So from the point when it turned from the report into the book in 2015, what I didn't mention is every year since then, I did a new annual version of the book that was printed and published. So what that meant was every January, my clock would reset. I would start to collect stories. I would start to go through them as the summer began, the summer in the U.S., and then I would uh, start writing, doing the research. I would eventually deliver the final manuscript around October. It would get printed uh, and, and distributed around November time, and it would come out in December, right before the new year. So it was an annual process. For five years, that was my annual process because I had this deliverable that had to get out at a specific time because then the book went into the airports. Everybody wanted the latest trends for the next year. So there was a very cyclical nature to how I would publish them. Yeah, that's that's great. And did you your the first publication? Did you self publish that? Did you go through a publisher? And how has that changed for you? Yeah, this this is interesting. This was uh, kind of my entrepreneurial story. So I had done my first two books with traditional publishers, which were not this non obvious book. I'd done two books before that that were more kind of marketing books. And for this book, I didn't want to do that process. And also, I knew no publisher in their right mind would ever agree to let me republish the same book every year, because that means your window to sell the previous version is only a year, which stinks. Uh, and so I knew no publisher would want to do that. So I actually built my own publishing company just to do this. And when I did that, and I figured out all the distribution, and I did everything, and I hit the Wall Street Journal list. I had all of these authors who were friends of mine who were getting deals with big publishers saying, well, we saw what you did and we like that. And so they started asking me if I could do that for them. And that ended up creating a company for me, which is now uh, Idea Press, which is one of my uh, entrepreneurial uh, companies that I launched with my wife. And that's become a, a pretty big publisher. I mean, we've done almost 50 books now. Uh, and some top tier books, multiple bestsellers, and it's kind of become a, a independent publisher. Uh, and that was born out of that initial idea. Mm, interesting. And uh, does the, in terms of the publishing, um, what uh, is there something that all the books have in common? 
Yeah, they're all, they're, well, they're all business books. They're all nonfiction. So we don't do cookbooks or kid books or anything like that. Uh, and the thing I think they have in common is that they all do have this thread of really powerful ideas, really unique, something that has to be out in the world that, that I believe in. I mean, that's still kind of the filter for what we choose to publish. Do I love the idea and the concept? And do I think it's important for that to be in the world? Yeah, I'm also curious. I mean, given that part of the reason you went this alternate path was because the existing publishing industry just didn't fit the style of what you wanted to do, their, their sales cycle and all those things didn't work. So I'm wondering if in, in your publishing uh, company, if you create space for similar kinds of authors, for people that want to sort of yep. try outside the box approaches. We do. Uh, yeah, we do indeed. We've done uh, all sorts of things with books that, uh, that, that a lot of publishers wouldn't. I mean, we have a book called Transparency Sale that uh, actually has a red translucent cover. Uh, we did another book called Close Deals Faster, where we printed a unique code uh, in the inside of each book uh, so that somebody could download special software, like access to a special thing. Uh, we've done large format books. We've done full color books. We've done smaller format books. I mean, lots and lots of variety. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've uh, browsed the site. And there's some fascinating books for people to to check out. I have a few that are going on my list. <laughs> yeah, and some great authors too. I mean, we have uh, we have just some great uh best-selling authors who really could have gone anywhere uh, with their new book project and, and chose this model because uh, they like the independence and entrepreneurial uh, belief behind it. Uh-huh. So I have to ask, and we'll, it'll, this will bring us back to some of the megatrends. I do want to get to education specifically. I've done a lot of my own consulting work over the years with publishers and uh, because of the sort of education publishers who are trying to reinvent themselves. And so many of them don't even call themselves book publishers anymore. They call themselves education companies or, or something, uh, something like that. So I'm wondering in terms of the non-obvious trends, if you have anything for that industry that you've, that you've noticed or uh, some patterns. Yes, I mean one of the one of them actually led directly to a whole publishing initiative that we have going on right now, which is this trend of of instant learning that I know we're going to talk about, and it's this idea that people expect to be able to learn almost anything faster now uh, because they have access to everything at their fingertips. And one of the things that it inspired, and this I think is a good example of of taking a trend which sometimes feels very academic and research oriented and turning it into action. And so what this instant learning trend uh, resulted in for us was that we launched an entire guidebook series that is meant to compete with the dummies guides. And they're called the non-obvious guides. And the idea behind them is sort of encapsulated in the time in the tagline, which is like having coffee with an expert. And instant knowledge and this idea of like sharing instant knowledge and acquiring instant knowledge was the, the trend. And that's what these books allow people to do. And so there was an example of us kind of taking the trend and turning it into something. Yeah, well, it's, uh, that gives us a great introduction then into the education space. And I know that a lot of my listeners are, most of them, maybe all of them are working in the field of education and, um, and, there, there is no shortage of top 10 lists of trends in education. You can find those all over the place. I tend to produce my own um, once a year, but there, there are tons of sites. But um, most of the items on that list, as you rightfully noted, are pretty obvious. I mean, someone's going to say something about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Someone's going to say something about blended and online learning, even though it started 
decades ago, um, right? We'll, we'll get some of those trends, but maybe we can dive in and talk about some of the ones that you find most interesting um, that are likely to have an impact on education and schooling. Yeah, look, there's there's so many. I mean, I, I would say there's another trend I wrote about called revivalism, which is the desire for us to go backwards in time and kind of bring back these analog experiences that we knew, whether it was vinyl music and listening to that again or, or making puzzles and playing board games or all of these things that have kind of happened since the pandemic. Uh, there was another trend I wrote about called amplified identity, which is this sense that who we are online becomes an extension of ourselves to the degree that we want to amplify what one element of ourselves for a certain platform and perhaps a different element of ourselves for a different platform. So it's entirely possible that I am a different person in many ways on LinkedIn than I am on Twitter, than I am on Facebook. And these are all parts of me, parts of my personality, but I choose to dial one up for a specific platform versus a different one. And so what relationship does that have to now how I choose to learn something, but also how I share what my credentials are because part of higher education at least is the idea that that part of why we're learning certain things is to be able to credential ourselves as experts in a very in a specific space so that we can enter that space and have credibility with others who are in that space as well that is really interesting i spent a lot of time i followed the digital badge movement from almost its birth and and wrote and blogged a lot about just my own thinking on it. And one of the things that shifted maybe four or five years ago, there started to be uh, a number of people who are paying more attention to the intersection of micro-credentials, emerging kinds of credentials, and uh, just what you're talking about, about online identity management and uh, this notion of identity. So for me, uh, there was kind of this, this click, this this item that clicked in my head where I realized that um, so much of, of education, it's, it's sometimes less about learning and it's more about almost like the fashion industry. Um, so, you, you know, yeah. you don't always get shoes because they're the most comfortable. You get them because you think they're cool or something like that. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um, so this, this amplification of identity or this uh, identity amplification, that's, that's really intriguing. I think there's some, uh, fascinating possibilities there. Yeah, and I think that I mean, just to not to overload you with trends in the last <laughs> in the last few minutes of <laughs> our time together, but there was another one that I thought really had interesting implications, particularly now in a time when we're rethinking a lot of of elements of learning and education because of distance learning and the fact that all of our kids are now doing all these remote classes and things like that. And one of the, the trends that I was writing about across the board was human mode. And human mode was my exploration of the experiences and and, uh, and products and, and sometimes uh, choices that we make that involve more people versus less people, more automation versus less automation. And how when we, as we become used to more automation, more virtual, the experiences that have more humans in them become higher value and therefore are more worth paying for. And I think we're already seeing this in terms of how higher education is starting to shake down and people saying, look, I don't know if I can justify, I mean, in fact, they do know, they cannot justify paying $40,000, $50,000 a year for somebody to sit at home and learn online. Um, it doesn't feel like an experience worth paying for versus being there in person does feel like that experience worth paying for. And so there is this kind of 
divergence of the real life experience with humans, whether it's an education or a live concert or a, you know, getting support from a real human versus an automated tool versus uh, something else. There's an, there's a, a reevaluation that says maybe that human experience is premium and worth paying more for. Hmm. Yeah, I've uh, been working with a group of 17 schools around the country, even around the world. I think there's one school in Vietnam that's part of it. They're K-12 schools. And it's a, a fellowship program I put together to help them prepare for um, through post-COVID or how they respond to COVID in their context. These are all private schools, so they're tuition dependent. And this is exactly sort of what they're grappling with is the number of parents who are, who are saying, yeah, it's great that you adapted and you responded, but I just can't justify paying tuition for me doing half the work at home, what they feel like as a parent. And, you know, my students uh, or my kids jumping in on Zoom three hours a day and, and doing some other work. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how that plays out, though. So the, the one angle on that is it's a premium cost. But does that likely mean from a trend perspective that it's going to be the the minority option, that the majority of people will choose the more affordable automated and that the uh, human will be for the wealthy and limited population? Or do you see that trend going another direction? Well, I think uh, that is certainly one way it could go. I think the other more perhaps optimistic way of looking at it is we will give more attention and uh, more of ourselves to those experiences where we are there in person. So if, for example, we have public schools going to a one day on, one day off type of schedule where some days you have students going into school and some days you don't so that we can keep social distancing, which is one model that people are thinking about. The days when those students are in school are going to be way higher engagement uh, as a result, perhaps than any of the days when they were in school and when they were going to school every day because it's fewer uh, moments. So part of it may be the scarcity of it. Part of it may be, yes, people who can afford it will pay for it. And yes, that is a, a, a potential thing we need to look out for in terms of the inequality of that. Uh, but I think the other thing is just from our attention, we will pay and give more attention and more of ourselves to those experiences because when we are there, we will really, maybe not kids, but when we're adults, when we're there, we'll really want to be there. And therefore we will... Uh, not check out maybe as much as we, we used to. We are almost at the end of our time. I'd love to talk about th this more. And if I've uh, been through your trends on multiple years, but not all of them. So um, <laughs> the um, maybe we can leave the, the audience or the listeners with um, uh, maybe you get this and I don't know if you enjoy this or uh, it drives you crazy when it happens, but uh, you get on the elevator and, uh, you know, let's imagine you're on the elevator and someone says, hi, I'm a new school leader. Out of all of the trends that you've talked about, what's the one that I need to be paying attention to the most? What might you say? I wrote about a trend that I called flux commerce. And it was essentially about how we are shifting the way that we pay for things and the lines that exist between industries. So retail and education are two different industries, but they can learn from one another. And to some degree, retail has been trying to because content marketing and, and a lot of that is, is based on the idea that as a retailer, you can educate your customer. And so the biggest opportunity I see is 
breaking down some of those barriers and being able to adapt more quickly instead of panic when disruption comes. That's easy to say, <laughs> challenging to do, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. But, uh, but I think what helps is not shutting your mind to what's happening in other sectors, right? So if you're able to listen and pay attention to things that are outside the world of education, even if you work in education already, you're ahead of a lot of your peers who are just looking at their own industry and, and really kind of putting tunnel vision on themselves. That's a great, great practical piece to end on for listeners. That's kind of my part of my secret too. I would go to CES in Vegas or other places outside of education and oftentimes get some of the most interesting aha moments uh, from stretching beyond the field or go to an architecture conference or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Rohit, you're doing some really, really fascinating work, and um, I appreciate that you're, the creativity uh, that you put into it. And, and it's obviously resonating, and it's uh, getting people thinking and adapting and adjusting in new ways. So thanks for being on the show, and thanks for what you do. Yeah, thank you. And if it's, uh, if it's of interest for, for your uh, readers, I do share every week uh, the most interesting stories of the week. And so we'll make sure and put in the show notes like how to basically get on that list because every week I'm curating through hundreds of sources of media and just sharing, here's what I think people should be paying attention to every week. And so um, if that's of interest, uh, I just publish that every, every week anyway. Uh, and I'd love to have anybody kind of join that group, join that list. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. We'll get that in the show notes and a couple of uh, links to, to the book and websites and anything else that you have, we'll put on there. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, thanks a lot, Rohit. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.